God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus's ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with his people in one place at one time. But after God outpoured his promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the power to do incredible things filled those who would receive it and overflowed to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread, unhindered. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people. And we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Well, good morning. It is August 1st. Overwhelming response here in the room. Uh, those of you that are attending online, it's August 1st. All right, big response there too. Hey, we are glad that you're here as we continue in uh, this series in the book of Acts. This is, I don't know, week eight or something. We'll go on through September. And um, the biggest regret you've heard me say before is that there is so much of the book of Acts that we have to pass over because we don't have time. So if you have not been reading along or studying along, I just want to encourage you today, we're going to pick up at the tail end of chapter 9, go through about halfway through chapter 11. And even in that section, there's a lot that I won't be able to talk about. Um, but it's a, an incredible story, the history of the church and his story of the church that continues on. And today, as I said, as we look primarily at Acts chapter 10, there's going to be a, a couple of cities that are going to be uh, really important to our, our story today. And I want to, as we get into it, I want to give you kind of the, the setting, the context. And my hope is that I don't muddy the waters and cause you great confusion in trying to, to bring about clarity, which I'm very capable of muddying waters with too many details. But we're going to be looking at Caesarea. Here's where I want you to, to make sure you don't get confused. In the New Testament, we hear about Caesarea, but there are two different towns named Caesarea. Kind of like if I said, hey, um, I was raised in Vancouver, you have two options. Is that Vancouver, Washington or Vancouver, British Columbia? Just like that, Caesarea and Antioch, we'll see this in the next two weeks, there's two different cities named Antioch. So it can be a little, confusion, a little confusing. And with Caesarea, there's Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the northern part of Israel. And then there's Caesarea Maritima, which is down on the Mediterranean. And we're going to hit a little of both of those today. So hope it's not confusing. The one that we're going to spend the majority of our time, though, is Caesarea Maritima. It was a town that was built on the Mediterranean Sea. It was built by Herod the Great. And it's an incredible town, uh, incredible city. In fact, 
um, Herod built this and, and called it Caesarea in, in honor of Caesar. It's, it's, it behooves you, if you work for a guy like Caesar, to name something after him. Names it after him. And it was, it was a, an incredible Roman city, like Rome away from Rome. And it was a, and a tremendous city. In fact, uh, the ruins are still there. When we, when we take trips to Israel, our first full day in Israel, our first stop is Caesarea Maritima and the ruins there. I have a picture, an aerial view of this, this picture. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea, beautiful setting. And Herod builds this in classic Roman style. There's wide roads, there's marketplaces, there's bathhouses, there's temples to the Greek gods, all of this. In addition to that, it was a, a cultural center. There was a, the Hippodrome that would seat 13,000 people to watch chariot races. For those of you old enough, think Ben-Hur and that scene of the chariot race. What happened in this Hippodrome? There's an incredible theater that they continue to use to this day, and the acoustics in this theater are absolutely phenomenal. Every time that we go there, I will stand down here at the bottom and speak in my normal voice without any amplification and it can be heard into thousands of seats. Unbelievable. And in addition to that, Herod built his uh, summer palace out here, looking out where the beautiful waters of the Mediterranean, the winds come off, it's a fantastic place. And because there was no fresh water here, Herod had a 10-mile aqueduct that would bring fresh water from Carmel, about 10 miles away, uh, bring fresh water into this area. But the crown jewel of this city that he built was the port, the harbor. Because on Israel's coast, there are no natural harbors. So Herod, way before his time, creates this architectural masterpiece where he makes a man-made deep water harbor port with these jetties that go out, these breakwaters that go out on both sides. And was done in such a way it had never been done before, where they built these barges with these walls, and then they filled them with, with lime and, and volcanic ash that had been shipped in from Italy, as well as rock and rubble, and sank them, and it becomes hardened as concrete. It's just a masterpiece. And this city was like, it was like the hub of all things uh, political and cultural. Now, Jerusalem was important to the Jews, but to Herod to, and to the Romans, Caesarea Maritima, that was, that was really the epicenter. And while it was this spectacular city, had all the things you would ever want in a Roman city, for the Jews, it represented Roman domination. It represented the Gentile occupation. It, it represented this pagan infiltration. For Jewish people, it was despised, it was disgusting. It, it was a city that you didn't want, you didn't like, you didn't appreciate at all. This will be a key city in our story today. 30 miles to the south is a little town, another small port town called Jaffa, modern day Jaffa. And Jaffa, and there's a story that, again, uh, we don't have time to go into with Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, which is just beautiful, uh, which means... Uh, gazelle. She's this beautiful gazelle, this woman of grace, who, this is what the Bible says about her, was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, we don't even have time for that story. Read that on your own. But she is from Joppa. Most people know biblically about Joppa from about 800 years earlier. And hang with me on this. This is where I'm trying to not, not muddy up the waters, but 800 years earlier. God would send prophets to Israel. And the reason for the prophets was because Israel had strayed off and he tries to get them back. And the whole goal was, was a right relationship with Yahweh and to get them back on track. And it was usually, if you don't get back on track, I'm going to have to take a more 
serious measure to get you back on track, and sometimes they would take the hard road. But he would send these prophets to Israel. There was one, however, that was kind of an outlier. His name was Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, but not a prophet to Israel. Jonah was a prophet to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, which would be in today, modern-day Iraq. And why would God send a prophet to some people who were not Jewish, not a part of Israel, not even a part of the, the geographic region? And Jonah, you may know the story, he said, I'm not going. You know, Nineveh was to the north and east. He went to the south and to the west, and he goes to the port of Joppa. And he's on his way to Tarshish. He's sailing out of town, going to the beach. I don't want to do this. And he gets on the boat, and many of you know the story. You know, there's a big storm, there's a big fish, there's a big burp, and he goes to Nineveh. And when he preaches the message, hey, if you guys, you guys are messing up and God is going to destroy you, they repent. They hear the message and they repent, and God relents. And Jonah, we read this in Jonah. Now, some of you are saying, are we talking about Acts or Jonah? Hang with me. Jonah prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Listen, folks, this is good news. But Jonah's ticked about it. He's ticked. He's like, God, see how you are? I knew it. I told you this was going to happen. Gracious God, so filled with loving kindness, slow to anger, always abounding in mercy. That's who you are. And he said, you know, I was wanting some retribution and destruction. And what do you do? Redemption and salvation because you're a gracious God. He's so ticked off. Now, this is how it all ties together, besides it coming from this town of Joppa, is that Jonah was sent to Nineveh because God has an incredible heart for those who are far away from him. And Jonah ran in disobedience, which ended up in this storm and this wind of adversity in his life. 800 years later, as we're going to see, it's the same heart that God has for those people who are far from him, that he comes to Peter and Peter does not run in disobedience. Peter walks in obedience. And instead of this wind of adversity, the wind of the Spirit brings about salvation. Beautiful, beautiful picture. So, so we have these two cities, Caesarea and Joppa. And we're going to have two main characters in this story. One of them is Peter, as I just alluded to. Another one is a man named Cornelius. Don't think Planet of the Apes, again, for those of you who are from my era. But Cornelius, very key player in this. So you have these two guys in these two cities, but the story is really a story of two key conversions that take place. Two key conversions. The obvious one will be Cornelius. A little spoiler alert, he will be converted. But the one that's a little more subtle, but maybe even more important, is the conversion that happens in Peter's life. So as I told you, there was this woman named Tabitha. She died. They heard about Peter. Peter came, and he's in Joppa. Uh, Tabitha, by the way, was, was brought back to life, and, and there was great rejoicing. So Peter is in Joppa. This is where we pick up Acts chapter 9. At the very end of Acts chapter 9, it says, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Peter's other name is? Simon, okay, 
online. Hopefully you're with me because we've all fallen asleep in the room. And he's staying with a guy named Simon. So you have Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner. It's an interesting thing because a tanner would be working with leather, would be working with the skins of dead animals, and to touch the dead animals, the carcasses would render him ceremonially unclean. It, it would be a stretch for Peter to be staying in this house, but this tanner, no doubt, at Joppa, right there, there's the salt water, which would help with his tanning, and, and because of, of the nature of, of what he did, it was probably on the outskirts of town because of the aroma, the, the stench of these dead animals, but maybe the, the trade winds coming off would help with the ventilation. But regardless, Peter is in this home and he's staying for we don't know how long. Now, again, when we go to Israel, we stop at this house. You can tell this is an authentic site because it says, House of Simon the Tanner in handwritten letters. Of course, this is the actual site. It's amazing how that paint has held up for 2,000 years. But we're there nonetheless. So Peter is there in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. And maybe, maybe he's working to kind of help pay for his own life. I mean, he's a fisherman by trade. Maybe he's doing fishing there on the sea, or maybe he's helping Simon out. But what we do know is while he's there, no doubt he is preaching and teaching. As he's doing this, 30 miles to the north in Caesarea, there's this man, Cornelius. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Centur so he's a part of the Roman army. He's a centurion. He's a man of authority. He's a man of rank. He has at least 100 soldiers underneath him. And he's not just rank and file. He is from Italia. He is of the Italian regiment. He is maybe from Rome. And this regiment is probably kind of an elite, maybe like a, a special forces, maybe a secret service, a, a rank above. And here's this man, Cornelius. He's a centurion, and he's a key player in our story. Interesting little side note. The first Gentile that Jesus interacts with was a man in Capernaum. In Capernaum, there was a man who was a Gentile, a centurion, whose um, servant had fallen ill. And he hears about Jesus, and he comes to Jesus and says, my servant is ill, can you heal him? And Jesus said, yeah, I'll come to your house. And he says, listen, I, I know how this works. I'm a man of authority. I know how it works in the military. You're a man of authority. You don't have to come to my house. Just say the word. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Some of you remember this story. The response is this. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. Let, let me just tell you, it takes a lot to astonish Jesus. But on this one, he's like, unbelievable. Just say the word. You just say it and you've got the power. Jesus was astonished and he said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He's commending a, 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 a Gentile for his faith. And he said, I mean, he's better than anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This prediction that many will come, not just Israel, from the east and the west. And now this is being fulfilled in the life of another centurion, probably 10, 12 years later, in Caesarea. So back to Cornelius. Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, centurion. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. 
He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. So not only is he a, like a special, elite, uh, authoritative Roman soldier, an officer, but there's something different about him. Like, he's grown tired and weary of the empty man-made religions, the pagan religions to all the gods and goddesses and all of the, the deities of the Greek mythology. And I mean, he should have been worshiping Mars, this great warrior, but he says, you know, that it's all just empty. It's all man-made. And somewhere along the line, he's been exposed to Judaism and to Yahweh, the monotheism, the one true God. And something clicks. He says, that's, that's what I need to be pursuing. None of this Zeus and Hermes and all, none of that stuff. So I need to be pursuing this God. And he's devout and he's God-fearing, which means he buys into it. He, he's reading the Torah. He might even be going to synagogue when that's uh, allowed. He's praying. He's being generous. One thing he hasn't done yet, he hasn't fully converted because that would entail circumcision. So he said, we're going to hold off on the surgery thing just for now. But he, he's this this God-fearing individual. And you look at his life. I mean, he's following the things of Torah. He's generous with his monetary possessions. He's giving to the poor. He's thinking of others. He's praying regularly. What's not to like? I mean, this guy's amazing, but this I want to point out very clearly. Cornelius had morality and religion, but not salvation. He was a man who wanted to be spiritual, but he did not have the spirit. He was a man who pursued religion, but he didn't have this relationship. He was a man in his actions who was very pious, but inside there was a, there was a missing piece. There, something was not quite right yet. But he kept seeking, he kept pursuing, he, kept, he, he knew he was on the right track. And here's this man who is seeking after God, wanting to know, what else might there be? And so one day he's praying. He's praying about three in the afternoon, which was one of the regular times that the Jewish people would pray. So he's following their, their rhythms. He's praying and he has a vision and an angel appears to him and the angel says this, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. You can't miss it. It's the stinky house. You can tell by the smell. You won't be feeling well when you get there. And beside that, across the board there, it says, home of Simon the Tanner. <laughs> Can't miss it. Now, when I read this, and if you've been reading and studying Acts along, you may know where I'm going with this. It brings up a question for me that this angel sent from the Lord tells Cornelius, send someone a day and a half's journey, 30 miles south, to Joppa to get Peter. The question I have is, why Peter and not Philip? If you've been reading this, and if you've been studying it, because Philip, who was one of the deacons, along with Stephen, we talked about Stephen a few weeks ago, Philip was one of the deacons, and Philip, when the big uh, persecution happened, he went into Samaria, and he began talking about Jesus, and Samaritans began to believe. He's not just a deacon, he's an evangelist. And God used him in the life of an Ethiopian official to help him explain the Old Testament and how it was fulfilled in Jesus, and he was baptized. And Philip goes along and he's evangelized. He's going town to town in the region. And then it says, until he ends up in Caesarea. 
why not just have Philip come and talk with him? I mean, it's going to take a day and a half journey down and a day and a half back. It's going to be at least three days if there's no traffic and if Peter actually comes. Philip could be there within an hour. Why not just go with Philip? And beside that, Philip's an evangelist. And he understands how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. And he's brought people to Jesus. And he knows how to deal with foreigners. I mean, he had the Ethiopians and, and the Samaritans. Why, why not Philip? And I think there's a couple reasons. Now, again, for some of you saying, yeah, I never would have asked that question. So I'm going to answer the question you would have never asked. Why Peter and not Philip? Because as you will see, this story, while it is about the conversion of Cornelius, this story is so much bigger than this. This story has such broad-reaching impact and effect. It will be so extreme, so paradigm-shifting. The, the whole church, it's going to change the whole nature of the church and the gospel that it's going to need someone with the highest human authority in the church of that day, and that would be Peter, not Philip. And that maybe, just maybe, that this is one of those specific things that God has intentionally, specifically anointed, called, and gifted Peter to do. Hang with me. Try not to get too muddy here. Earlier, a few years earlier, in the other Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, way up to the north. Jesus has Peter, James, and John, and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. You remember Jesus' response to Peter? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, which is kind of interesting because we've already talked about Jonah. It has nothing to do with it, but I think it's interesting. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I usually think of that, well, that's just kind of generally that Jesus has given us authority and opening things up. But maybe, just maybe, he's talking specifically to Peter. He says there's going to be a, a, a specific dispensation of God's grace to you. There are going to be a set of keys that no one else gets. And I'm going to use you to unlock some doors. Maybe. Just maybe. All right. File that away. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So, Cornelius sends three people to Joppa. Two of his household and one other soldier. Meanwhile, Simon Peter is in Joppa. Maybe been working, tanning hides that morning. We don't know, but it's around noon, and he gets hungry. They're going to stop for lunch. He's hungry. They're preparing the meal. He goes up onto the rooftop. I mean, how incredible. He decides to spend some time in prayer. What a setting for prayer. Looking out onto the turquoise waters of the Mediterranean, and as it gets deeper, they become this deep cobalt blue. And then the sky with this azure blue, and the wind's coming. What a great place to be praying. He's up there praying, and his stomach is growling. He's hungry. And it says he goes into a trance. Some of you have prayed when you were hungry, and you've gone into a bit of a trance as well. In and out, burger. Double, double. Yeah, I mean, whatever. He has this trance in the midst of all this hunger and prayer, and it's an odd one. It says this. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, these quadrupods, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, 
get up, Peter, kill and eat. Well, of course, he's hungry. This is, you know, is this just from his hunger pains? But there's something very, very important here. That this sheet is being let down from heaven, this vision he sees with all of these animals and reptiles and birds. In Leviticus chapter 11, there's a very clear list of what foods, animals that you can eat and which ones you cannot eat. And which ones are clean and which ones are unclean. And which ones are pure and which ones are impure. And as the sheet is being let down, there's all of these animals, and many of them are on the list found in Leviticus 11 of these are unclean, impure animals. You do not eat these. And yet the voice says, kill and eat. There are some things that make you go, hmm. There are some things that make you go, yum. This is one of those things where he says, this makes me go, no, never. I never have. I never will. I don't eat the unclean animals. I follow Leviticus 11. I don't eat the impure animals. I will not. It, it, it's, it's impure. It's, it's unclean. And you're telling me to kill and eat. And the response, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And it kind of implies that maybe Peter pushes back again because this happens three times. Three times he sees this vision. Three times he hears this voice. And pondering these things. What does this mean? What's going on? And maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit reminds him of something that Jesus had said years before. Because there are things in their Levitical laws that were unkosher, that you couldn't eat together, you couldn't eat at all. And Jesus referred to it one time in Mark chapter 7, says, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, into his stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Can I get an amen? Bacon double cheeseburger, hallelujah. Lobsters and clam chowder, amen. Pork chops, it, it, this is good. These are the things that we enjoy. And Jesus declared those clean. So it's not about the food. But what we begin to understand here is that, and I'm not even sure if parable is the right word, is that this vision that he's seen, it's a parable. It's, it's more than just a meal. It, it's, there's something broader here. It's, it, it's, this, it, it's beyond just a meal. It's, it's whatever the blank is. It's, it's not a, it, there it is. The vision is a parable. It's bigger than a meal. That's what I was trying to say. It's bigger than a meal. But he's using this in his hunger in Leviticus. And he's just thinking about all this. And as he's trying to figure all this out and he's still hungry and the meal's being prepared, then this happens. While Peter's still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. These are the three that Cornelius sent down. They've been traveling for a day and a half. So get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Notice, he doesn't say who they are. He doesn't say where they're from. He doesn't say what they want. He doesn't mention the detail that they're not Jewish. He just simply says, there's some guys that are downstairs. I'm telling you, don't hesitate to go with them. He goes downstairs. He sees these guys. I'm sure that initially there's a shock because he recognizes they are not Jewish, but the Spirit said to go with them. And he says, um, I'm the guy you're looking for. What can I do for you? And they begin to tell the story. 
we work for Cornelius. He's a God-fearing man. He's respected by all the Jews. He had this vision. An angel said, come find a guy named Peter, Simon, Simon the Tanner. Come back because we want to hear everything that you have to say. Now, what happens next, we just think is just common courtesy. But it was culturally, for a Jewish person, culturally almost unheard of. Verse 23. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. This was strongly discouraged because to interact with Gentiles meant that you ran the very high risk of becoming ceremonially unclean, impure, to have any kind of contact with them and definitely not to eat with them. So to have them in as his guest, it's not just come in and have a cup of iced tea. They're preparing a meal. They probably sat down at the table and ate together and it's implied that these guys may have stayed overnight in the home. And then the next day, they're going back to Caesarea. Peter decides to take six of his Jewish friends with him. So you have the three from Cornelius that are there, Peter and six of his friends, ten of them. And they're going back up, a day and a half journey. And who knows what's going on in that day and a half? Who knows what these Jewish guys are saying? What are we doing with Gentiles? Who knows what kind of conversations are? Tell me the story. Tell me a little bit about Cornelius. For a day and a half, they travel together. Meanwhile, Cornelius is doing the math. They ought to be showing up today. So he has kind of a neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor block party. He gets all of his friends together, all of his relatives together, all of them, because they want to hear what this guy Peter is going to tell them. And we find this. As Peter entered the house, he's in, now in, in uh, Caesarea, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, which was awkward. You know, although Peter may be going, that's what I'm talking about. About time I get some respect around this kingdom of God thing. No, 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 you don't want to be, I mean, come on, seriously. If Pastor Kip came in and we start singing, our Kip is an awesome Kip, and there's just something wrong with that. And here's this guy down at his feet, and Peter's like, come on, get up, get up, don't, come on, get up, he says. Peter made him get up, stand up. I'm only a man myself. And talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. The fact that Peter had allowed Gentiles into his dwelling with Simon the Tanner and asked them as guests, that was highly, strongly discouraged. What was even uh, more unthinkable was not to just extend hospitality to Gentiles, but to accept and receive hospitality from Gentiles to go into their house. Because as long as you have them in your house, at least you can know what is kosher and what's not, where the meat came from, what you're serving, what you're not serving, what the utensils were used. At least you can control that. You go into their house, you have no control. You don't know if that meat's been sacrificed to idol. You don't know what kind of seafood that is. You don't know what kind of utensils. That you, you have no idea. And you, just by touching this stuff, you're going to become ceremonially unclean. You would never go into a Gentile's house. And what he does here. He's probably thinking, what, what am I doing? I've never been in a Gentile's house like this before. What, what's going on? But he remembers what the Spirit has said. And he addresses this, this crowd. He said to them, says, call the elephant what it is. It's sitting here in the room. You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Here's this crowd. He says, you guys know it's against our law for me to be here right now probably a little bit tense, probably a little bit quiet. But as he's doing this, something's happening. There's a conversion that's happening to him. There's a, a shift in mindset, a, a shift in perspective, a, 
a repenting, a, a thinking differently, of acting differently. And maybe he's thinking through all the things he's just gone through. There was that vision, the sheet, Leviticus 11, the voice of the Spirit telling me to go with Gentiles. They came into my house. I'm in their house. Was that sheet more than just this and Cornelius and hear it from the angel? All these pieces. And maybe he starts connecting the dots. And maybe there's these, these aha moments. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. It's changing the way he looks at Gentiles. His whole life, and for the Jewish people, for hundreds of years, Gentiles were seen as unclean dogs, repulsive, hated by God. It was obvious that you, you don't interact with them, but, but something's happening here. Something's changing. And God's showing him you should not call anyone unclean or impure. And, you know, he, he's asking them what's going on. Cornelius tells a story. You can read this again for yourself. Cornelius tells about what he went through. And then he says, and we're here, and we want to hear what you have to say. You, you, you read this in, in chapter 10. There's this eagerness. There's this hunger. Tell us. We're hungry for what does God have for us? And Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Do you know what a breakthrough this was for a Jewish man? I mean, his whole life he had prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a Gentile. Because I'm a Jewish man. I'm a Jewish free man. I'm God's favorite. There was such a prejudice, there was a racial prejudice nature against Gentiles. There were good guys and bad guys. There was us and there was them. There were God's favorites and God's, the ones that he hated. And suddenly he's realizing that all has to go out the window. God doesn't have favorites. If he has favorites, the reality is this, everyone's his favorite. It's not just the Jewish people. It's not just the nation of Israel. It's not just the men. God doesn't have favorites. But he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Like every nation. And I just wonder, as Peter's saying this, all of a sudden, in the back of his head, there's just like, oh, yeah, that's what Jesus said. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and, and to the ends of the earth, all nations, of course. How did I not see this? How did we not see this? And he just begins to tell them these things. And I think the biggest conversion that happens here is what's happening with Peter. Oh, yeah, he knows Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. But there's a conversion in his thinking. There's a conversion in his understanding of those who are outside of Judaism. It's these aha moments when it's becoming really, really clear as he just tells these things. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel. <laughs> Us telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Oh, Lord of all. Not, I mean, yeah, I get Lord over all, his, his sovereignty, his supremacy, his omniscience. I get that, but he's not just Lord over all. He's Lord for all, for all people. 
not just for us, but even for these guys and for everybody. So he just starts preaching about Jesus, and he tells the story. Again, read it on your own, Acts chapter 10. He just starts preaching about Jesus. In the middle of his sermon, it gets interrupted, and he's okay with this interruption. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. He's in a house filled with Romans and Gentiles, and he's talking about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes on to them. And he's like, whoa, never would have thought this happens. Now, let me take you back to this whole idea about him receiving the keys to the kingdom. This might not be accurate. There may be a day when I stand in heaven and Jesus said, you remember that sermon you preached on August 1st about the keys of the kingdom and all that? Yeah, you were way off on that one. I'm just telling you up front, this may not be the case, but follow me on this one. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends and Peter gives the sermon, and the Holy Spirit comes to all the Jewish people. It was when Peter gave the sermon. In Acts chapter 8, Philip goes into Samaria. People believe in Jesus there, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come and lay hands on them. And when Peter is there laying hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit. Samaritans weren't fully Jewish. They're half Jewish. They're, that's why they were despised. They were half-breeds. They were half Jewish, half Gentile. And now in Acts chapter 10, Peter's with Cornelius, with people who aren't even a portion Jewish. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes even on the Gentiles. Could it be that in Acts chapter 2, one of the keys of the kingdom that has been given to Peter, unlocks the door for the Holy Spirit to come on to the, Gen the Jews. Acts chapter 8, even though Philip has evangelized him, it's the key to the kingdom that unlocks the Holy Spirit to come on to the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, once again now, the most unlikely of all, the key of the kingdom unlocks the door that the Holy Spirit would come even to the Gentiles. And the final door is unlocked. Now it's everybody. Now it's the Jews, the Samaritans who are half Jewish, and even these Gentiles who are not Jewish at all. That it's finally done. And so Peter stays there and he teaches them and God is doing incredible works and word of this begins to spread and it's an amazing thing as the kingdom of God is now making its way into the Gentile world. Not everybody is so excited about this. Eventually, Peter goes back to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 11, verse 2. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers, these are the ones who are fully Jewish. You know, they've gone through the surgery. They, on the eighth day when they were babies or later, they've been circumcised. They criticized him. You know what they criticized him for? Not for preaching the gospel, not for praying, they criticized him for going into their house and eating with them. That was the critique. Like, you've done this unthinkable, deplorable act. And Peter decides, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to try to convince them. Because I wouldn't have been convinced either, probably. He says, I'm just going to tell the story. Here's a little thing. I think I have time for this. In Acts chapter 11, first part. He just retells what happened in Acts chapter 10. 
quiz for you, answer boldly even if you're wrong. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Good. One of you got it. Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. Question number two. Was Luke Jewish? No. Luke was a Gentile doctor who's writing this book. And maybe as a Gentile, an outsider, he includes this story twice just to make it really clear. I want everyone who ever reads my book to know that the Holy Spirit was given not just to the Jews, not just to the Samaritans, but to the Gentiles as well. And I'm going to tell you that. And so Peter, just, he just begins to tell these people, here's the story, here's what happened. And I'm telling you, he gets to the end, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the beginning. And then I remember what the Lord had said. So he pulls the Jesus card, that's a good one. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And maybe he's saying, and who are you to think that you can oppose God? Now what this does is it paves the way, it opens the door for Paul's ministry, which we'll get into next week and the week following. Paul's ministry to take the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit all throughout the Roman Empire to the Gentiles and opens that up. And years later, uh, we may not get to it in, in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to this 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 Gentile city called Ephesus, and it's an amazing thing that happens there as people hear about Jesus, and they're transformed, and they're converted, and years later, he would write them a letter, and in the book, of, in the letter in, in Ephesians, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, remember the heart of God for those who are far away? You who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's made the two one, the us and them, the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats, the Jewish and the Gentiles. He's brought them together. The two become one, and the barrier is destroyed, not because of anyone's race, but because of Jesus. And how incredibly beautiful when he would write, and we'll look at, at the, the region of Galatia in two weeks. It, it's not a town, it's a region. When he writes to this region, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I entitled this sermon... Unus pro omnibus, which is Latin, which I don't know. I had to look up on the internet, but this thought, I thought this will sound impressive. Unus pro omnibus, which means all for one. I mean, you remember the three musketeers. One for all, all for one. And what happens here is we realize all are one, and there's one for all. What an incredible picture. At the end of this, he tells them in Jerusalem what's happened. He says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. 
And isn't that what Jesus was all about? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let, let me just kind of bring this home and land this for us. What you read and see in Acts chapter 10 is the history of the church, but it's his story of the church that continues on. Peter and Cornelius, God does some conversions in the context of a relationship, that they spend time together, that there's hospitality given, there's curiosity, there's questions that are asked, there's stories that are shared, there's spiritual conversations, and God is at work in the midst of it all. And not only does it result in Cornelius' life being changed, but maybe more importantly, it resulted in Peter's life being changed. Think about that for a minute. So, to get real practical, you've heard us talk about the neighbor to neighbor. We're encouraging you to be intentional, very intentional about connecting with family, friends, people where you work, live, and play. So that there's relationships that are built. There's hospitality that's shared. There's time spent together. There's curiosity. There's questions that are asked. There's stories that are told. There might even be spiritual conversations and to know that that God is in the midst of it all working. And yes, the goal is that everyone would be able to have life in Jesus. But maybe, just maybe, one of the greatest impacts of what will happen in your neighbor-to-neighbor connection is what God does within us. So, I want to encourage you to continue this story that started 2,000 years ago in our chapter right now.